This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, a task force that has been looking at Canada's po- uh, Canada Post business models says that it isn't financially self-sustainable under its current co- uh, structure. It's a good thing we had another committee to study that. Isn't that how we got here in the first place? Isn't that how we first got to super mailboxes back in the mid-1980s? All right, uh, what do they recommend? Also, Ontario's largest union is uh, gonna is suing Ontario, uh, the Ontario government, for over, uh, selling off uh, Hydro One. A couple of things we're going to talk about with Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Hello, Marvin. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you, Scott. Marvin, thanks for taking the time. You know we appreciate this. Uh, isn't it kind of ironic that the political party that was campaigning on bringing back home mail delivery has now released a study saying that it's not feasible? Well, so let's be clear about who released the study. This, this was an arm's-length group of four people. I couldn't give you their names, but they are not government members. They're not from a political party. They weren't hired by Canada Post. These were just four intelligent individuals who took a look at this, and it becomes, this becomes a discussion paper for a series of hearings that are going to be held coast-to-coast over the month of September and early October to inform, to inform the federal liberals on what kind of policy they should, uh, should adopt. And you're right, there is no surprise here at all. They've come back and said that Canada Post is unsustainable in its current form, that uh, the letter mail volume is dropping at such a rate that you just can't keep doing things as usual. So they have proposed a whole series of things. Some of them are, are bound to get, uh, <laughs> if you didn't like super mailboxes, wait until you hear some other things. For instance, if you want door-to-door mail delivery, they've suggested charging you $125 a year. Hmm. So that's the cost to get that letter to you. Now, they've come to a middle ground in saying we don't have to do that for everybody. What we could do is keep door-to-door delivery for people in high-density urban areas, say areas with lots and lots of apartment buildings, what have you, and we could probably even give you uh, mail delivery for people who qualify because of their age or infirmity. That would cost the corporation $50 million a year, but that's something that it could absorb. So we may see move towards super mailboxes, but with some exceptions, and you'd have to apply for those. They've also talked about increasing the cost of a postage stamp from now 85 cents a letter, a dollar if you just buy them one stamp at a time, up to, now wait for this, a dollar and a half a letter. That would make it sustainable. They also talked about moving to a model of every other delivery, every other day delivery for letters, but five-day week delivery of parcels. Again, consumers interviewed about this seemed more than willing to go to less mail delivery, letter mail delivery, but they wanted their parcels whenever they came in. The current agreement with the Canada Post employees doesn't allow you to segregate like this. So mail is mail, whether it's a parcel or an envelope from their standpoint. Um, and they even talked about uh, trying to get in some new businesses. They, this task force was not keen on banking. They feel the Canadian banking industry is pretty strong and it doesn't really need anybody else. And when you surveyed consumers, they didn't want that. But again, wait for it. If we're going to legalize marijuana, maybe Canada Post should get into the marijuana distribution business. Lots of things to talk about. Do, didn't they do that? Don't they do that already with uh, medical marijuana? Well, this, but this was the idea, was that uh, uh, to, to get into being a delivery method for right. that. Now, there are lots of other people who believe, no, we shouldn't deliver it by mail. We should make you come in person right. to either a mom-and-pop shop or here in Ontario. At least maybe the LCBO should get into this. 
everybody and his brother seems to want to jump on the bandwagon when me- when medical marijuana disappears in favor of just general marijuana. Uh, it, it seems that there's lots of solutions, but nobody seems really interested in, in, in any one. Like, for example, you were talking about $120 a year to continue with uh, home mail delivery. When you, That's only 10 bucks a month. That's not a bad deal if you, if you really want that sort of thing. It's not a bad deal, and it does represent the cost. But as you know, we Canadians feel like we're already taxed enough. Yeah. And when I ask you to voluntarily pay a tax on anything, you're going to be upset about any change from the model. We saw that with the super mailboxes. Now, I'm going to just give you my personal bias. I moved into Dundas a little over 20 years ago, had a home built for me there. And from the beginning, I've had a super mailbox, and I absolutely love it. Why I love it is that when I go away... If I'm away for a few days, I don't have to worry about what's going to happen to my mail in my outdoor mailbox. Mm -hmm. I know it's safely locked away. As well, the super mailbox does allow delivery of small parcels. I don't have to go to Shoppers Drug Mart or something to pick that up. It's already there, and it's all safe and secure. I kind of like it. Now, yes, I have neighbors here who are older, and yes, in the depths of winter, when we have one of those howling storms that drop a foot of wet snow, killer snow, they don't go out. But they've said to me, there's nothing I'm expecting in the mail that can't wait a day or two mm-hmm. until the sidewalks are cleared and everything is salted. And so they love it as well. I, I think we're overreacting to the situation, but that's what those hearings are going to have now as they go coast to coast to see what is palatable to Canadians, what is not palatable. My feeling is paying for the delivery won't be palatable, but maybe some combination where the most, most needy can still get it, maybe that would work. Um, uh, two questions here. Haven't we been down this road before? And the second one, is there a better model? I mean, or is this just a, a Band-Aid solution? I mean, none of this seems uh, really out of the ordinary that, that would keep them, uh, you know, in any safer position than they are without it. Mm-hmm. Let me deal with your second question first, if I can. Is this a Band-Aid solution? I can certainly close my eyes and imagine a world without uh, post offices, uh, without the mail. Um, I'm not sure when that would be, five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road, but we've been doing so many transactions today on the Internet. Uh, if I told you you're going to lose your mail service, you might be a little upset. If I told you you're going to lose your Internet service, I think you would protest uh, right, left, and center. We've become so reliant on that new technology. So it, it is possible that Canada Post, again, in its current form, is a dinosaur facing extinction. Um, that's why I think this task force it does want to go beyond simply a Band-Aid. If, if all you did was, I don't know, increase the rates by $0.10 cents a stamp or something like that, you're not, you're not really changing the fundamental business model. I think you've got to look at a, a more fundamental change. Uh, my model, which they didn't talk about, is to turn Canada Post into more of a government delivery service, meaning that I can use a Canada Post uh, a kiosk or location to maybe apply for a passport or or fill out some other government forms and submit them to the government rather than going to another place. Um, I think becoming really clever then about what Canada Post can do and changing the legislation, because that's really the key aspect here. It's not that Canada Post isn't a, a good corporation or a clever corporation, but it is highly restricted as to what it can do thanks to the legislation. For instance, I'll give you another simple example. All letters are supposed to more or less cost the same, regardless of whether I'm mailing it across the street or across the country. That's embedded in the legislation moving to a model that says, well, the further you mail it and the faster you want it to get there, you pay more, that might be another way to, to change the business model, but that would require a, an act of parliament. 
Uh, at the end of the day, Marvin, you know, Canada Post, Post means letters. Um, do we just have to face the fact that that industry, as you, as you said, has become a dinosaur? I mean, anything else, aren't we just taking the brand and adding another service to it to prop up that? Right. I hear what you're saying. And, and what, what the task force also said on this is that the, the question mark here is parcel delivery. For the moment, parcels are going up. And it seems that as we do more shopping from home, we need to find a way to get those goods sent to us and, and delivery by Canada Post or by couriers, by the private sector, seems to be on the way up. The problem is that the letter mail is dropping so fast that it's dropping faster than the parcel mail is going up. The future of Canada Post may be as more of a, of a delivery mechanism for, for goods, parcels that we buy online, but to bridge that. So what they're suggesting at the moment, they're not prepared to call it a dinosaur that's facing extinction. Instead, what they're looking at is a bridging solution until we get a better sense of what the new core business, the delivery of parcels, is going to be. And then you may have to right-size or reconfigure the organization if that is its new reason uh, uh, to exist. Uh, obviously, Canada Post was moving in the direction of eliminating the rest, of which I guess is approximately one-third of those who still are on home mail delivery. If you finally eliminate that service and just transform everyone over into super mailboxes, does Canada Post survive? It buys them time, I think is the best way to say. Canada Post has suggested, and by the way, they're, they're thrilled with this task force report because they say it's more or less confirmed all of the, all the future developments that they've seen in their planning sessions. Uh, what, what it would do if we all, if, and again, it's not all of us, if most of us move to super mailboxes, if you're in an apartment building, you're not going to phase out the mailbox no. down at the bottom. It's kind no. of like a super mailbox. But mm -hmm. for the suburban people, getting you all the super mailboxes buys them a decade. And in that decade, they say, we can, we can maybe figure out another way and, and move forward. That's, that's why they're trying to do it. The Liberals stopped it. Uh, didn't say no forever. They just said, put a freeze on it. I would not be surprised if after the hearings, the Liberals try to pick the most palatable solution, and I think super mailboxes may come right back on the table again. It, it does seem to be the first, more, most logical thing to do, the, the, the easiest thing to do that's already worked. Apparently two-thirds of Canadians were in favor of the super mailboxes. Now, that's of all Canadians, not just those who get door-to-door -door delivery, but I think that represents those who already have it and have, have enjoyed the benefits of it. Um, the next most palatable idea was going to every-other-day delivery of mail, uh, so those two, I think, are most likely the winners. Raising rates, charging for delivery, I think the Liberals will say, well, we heard you, you don't want that, here's the most palatable solution. Don't you find it odd that more are choosing to get less delivery as opposed to walking to a super mailbox and getting it every day? Well, I, uh, I mean, it's interesting. I think it does speak to how we view the post. If you're under 40, you may not get a letter for weeks, if not months on end, you do everything so electronically. Yeah. And, in fact, if you do get a letter today, it sort of says, oh, my gosh, this must be really important. Now, I'm talking about a letter, not, <laughs> not ad mail. When you get ad mail, everyone sees that as, quote, junk mail and, and tosses it away unless it's a flyer you really use. But in terms of actually getting a letter, you go, oh, what, what is this? this? This must be something. Oh, my gosh, it's a summons for jury duty or something. Mm -hmm. Still done as important. Um, but I also know a number of younger people who are really of no fixed address, meaning that they move so frequently and sort of s stay with other friends as they travel around looking for work, what have you. I don't know how I'd even get them a letter. So th their just view of the post is different than those people who are older. All right, let's move on. Uh, union, Ontario's largest union uh, suing the uh, government over privatization of Hydro One. Um, are you surprised at this? How did this come about? 
Well, if you don't mind, let me just first get everyone to where we are, and then let's talk about that. So the Ontario government decided they were going to uh, sell shares in Hydro One. Now, Hydro One is the distribution network, so it's the big, long-distance power lines. This is not Ontario Power Generation that owns the works in Niagara or the Bruce or other sorts of things, so they don't generate any power. This is just the transmission lines. The Ontario government decided last year, 2015, that it would sell up to 60%. At this point, they've sold two batches of 15%. So at this moment, Hydro One is 30% owned by the private sector. There's to be another tranche this fall, another tranche in the spring of 2017, and that would get you to 60%. So what QP has done is filed a lawsuit to stop any further sales. The first 30% is done, can't reverse that. They're trying to stop any further sales. And their argument is based on, in essence, a cocktail party that you paid to attend and schmooze with, at that time, the uh, finance minister, Charles Souza, and uh, the energy minister at the time, uh, whose name has just escaped me, Bob something or other. Shirelli, yeah. And, and he, uh, you could pay $7,500 to schmooze with those. And many of the people who paid the $7,500 to schmooze with those were people either involved in selling the stock, people like banks, what have you, who helped make the deal happen, or some of the people who bought the stock. So QP is saying to the courts, this, see, see, this is conflict of interest. You must stop any further sales. The liberals have violated things. The... Um, Integrity Commissioner has already investigated this allegation and ruled that there was no conflict of interest. Uh, he did recommend, however, that we get better, stricter rules on these sorts of fundraisers, and that's what's led the Liberals to have the bill that they're about to reintroduce on, on fundraising. Uh, but I think what QP is trying to demonstrate is its commitment to keeping public things public. They are quite concerned about what a new employer would be like, a private sector employer might might uh, have different kinds of contracts and negotiate in a different way. They like the current system, and, and they argue they want to keep the public sector public. I'm not surprised. They've sued the government before on several occasions. They sued the Mike Harris government over this and actually won. They sued the liberals on uh, some negotiating tactics they did back in 2012, and they won that lawsuit. So they've had a history of victory. I'm not the least bit surprised that they're trying this. How does this change the plan moving forward for the Premier, or does it at all? I don't think it does at all. Now, clearly, with uh, 18 months or so, two years to re-election, the Premier has become much more focused on her ability to get re-elected. The polls would suggest that nobody has any great love lost for Kathleen Wynne, but what helps her a little bit is the polls also don't seem to suggest anyone really loves the alternatives. So I don't know how that election would turn out at this point. <coughs> what she's trying to do is um, generate the cash from uh, the sale of uh, the other sale of 30% of Hydro One. By the way, that total cash, about $6.5 billion, and then she wants to put that towards transit. So those early transit projects, she's hoping to get some of those started so she can say, you see, see, this is why I've done this. Look at what good we're getting for you down the road. That's the gamble she's taking. Um, does the union lawsuit change perception, change support around this issue at all? Or, or is it just, as you said, basically trying to make the point? Well, they've said that, uh, although the arguments around the cocktail party, that it's really very much about the point of keeping the public things public. They believe this is short-sighted, selling this public good. And, and I'll agree with them to this extent. This public good does not just operate for your benefit and my benefit, but it does generate a dividend. It does yeah. it profitably, and it's estimated that it's going to cost the government about a half a billion dollars a year in lost revenue. So yes, you get six and a half billion up front, 
but you're losing an ongoing revenue stream of $500 million a year. And, you know, they would rather see you keep that and do it for the public interest. Their concern, of course, and I think that's everyone's concern, is these private sector buyers, what are they going to do to Hydro One? I'll, I'm going to admit my bias here. I'm not as concerned about this because uh, this is still going to be a highly regulated industry. Now, if I'm distributing electricity and I want to change the rates, I can't just unilaterally do this. I have to apply to the Ontario Energy Board. The Ontario Energy Board says, yes, I can make a little profit doing that, but it truly is a little profit. They keep the profit margins down to something like 3 4 5%. The people who are interested in buying these shares are not, I don't know, uh, the Donald Trumps of the world, right. the, the, the big billionaires of the world. It's people like insurance companies who need a long-term investment that's going to have a nice guaranteed return, probably at a little better, better rate than they can get on GICs, and that's, that's the people who are interested in this. They're not really interested in jacking up the rates and screwing the public, which is what everyone fears. They're really more interested in a long-term, steady cash flow. And if it frees up the government's money so they can do something, now the question is, is this the right priority? One priority could be to leave it right where it was in the, in the hydro infrastructure, but there are many, many people, you know, who believe in the future with transit, and it's, we need a significant transit investment. We just can't get that money through taxes this might be another way to do it. PCs obviously critical of this, yet they were doing the same thing, did so with the 407. How is this different? Well, two things that are different. Uh, In the 407 case and in the Mike Harris version of privatizing Ontario Hydro, it was to sell the whole utility. What makes Kathleen Wynne's proposal a little more palatable is that Ontario is going to retain a 40% ownership, which will make them the single largest owner. They've also restricted the amount of shares that any other party can buy. So I think the most you can get is 5% of the company. If I've got 40% and everyone else has got 5 I'm still the dominant shareholder, and I still have an awful lot of control of the, of the asset. So in this situation, it's quite different. Um, uh, in the case of the 407 highway, of course, we sold the whole darn thing to the private sector, and now we've lost that ability to control. So I think I give her credit again. I think if you were going to sell an asset, retaining the control is critical. You can still set government policy, and it's a regulated asset at that. I just don't think it's going to be that bad news for consumers. And, Scott, maybe let me say one other quick thing on that. If you're complaining about your hydro bill and the soaring cost, it has nothing to do with this privatization. This is the only uh, the, the, this company, Hydro One, is responsible for about the 20% of your hydro bill in terms of the distribution of hydro. If, if you have a real concern, it is around the cost of electricity itself. That has gone up 28% at the highest rate over the last 18 months, but it is not the distribution charge. It really has not seen that kind of soaring escalation. So what is it then, Marvin? Well, I, you know, I hate to tell you this. I've done a personal analysis of my own electricity bills, and I don't see this soaring uh, aspect that everyone complains about. Did I use more electricity in the spring of this year? I sure did, but it was one of the hottest springs on record. This year is going to be the hottest year on record. And, yes, I've run my air conditioner because I feel I'm worth it. Uh, it cost me a couple bucks a day, and it added about $50 to my electricity bill last time around. I think that is the biggest culprit of all. People are looking for another kind of a scapegoat, but really it's our own personal consumption of electricity that's at fault. But Marvin, we're hearing so many reports that, uh, you know, despite people that are conserving, their bills are going up. I mean, there's no shortage of that. Well, I hear people saying those things, but of course that's their point of view on this, and what I'd rather see is, is see an analysis of the bills themselves. There are many people who believe they're doing big things, like putting in the compact fluorescent lights or the LED lights. 
lighting in your home is only representing about 5% of your electricity bill. The, the single largest cost is the heating and the cooling. And the people who are complaining the most tend to be rural customers, rural customers who don't have many other choices. For instance, we don't run natural gas yeah. out in the countryside. Mm-hmm. So I heat my home with gas. My bills fall in the winter months because I don't use electricity uh, for, for heating purposes. I run the electricity to run the fan. Uh, those people who are stuck, and I think it's mostly the rural customers, they do consume an awful lot of energy. Uh, and I have my, you know, again, my heart goes out to them, but I'm not sure their conservation efforts are in the biggest ways possible. Replacing your fridge, replacing your washer and dryer, yes, it'll make a marginal difference to your bill, but the biggest culprits are heating and cooling. So the hue and cry that everybody is, is, that the Premier is experiencing now is unwarranted? I'm going to say partially. This is the jump on. Uh, philosophy or the, the sort of the, the wave that we get. Once that dam opens, everyone, oh yeah, my bill's gone up, my bill's gone up, and we all want to jump on and complain. It's like property taxes. If somebody complains about property taxes, we all complain about property taxes. Nobody likes to pay a little bit more. But I, again, I'm going to tell you, I think the biggest culprit here is the weather that we've been experiencing. This is the cost of climate change. And if we don't uh, really get to the bottom of that, we're all going to be paying an awful lot more. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. As always, Marvin, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. There's uh, an interesting story, and I guess this all started uh, on Monday, September 11th, uh, or September 12th, the day after uh, September 11th. And uh, Prime Minister Trudeau is facing backlash now over attending a gender-segregated event in a Ottawa mosque. Uh, of course, uh, if you're a uh, an opponent of Trudeau, it's easy to jump on this. And uh, if you're not, I guess y- you you call it building relationships. What is it? A hypocrisy or building a foundation for future understanding? Uh, let's bring in uh, bring in Anthony Fury, Sun Media columnist and national comment editor. Uh, his uh, column in the uh, Sun or Post Media back on September 12th. Trudeau visits mosque with terror connections, and he is with us now. Hello, Anthony. How are you today? Hey, Scott. I'm doing well. Yourself? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, him visiting this mosque, your your angle has more of the affiliation uh, with uh, some unsavory people. Others have talked about just the sheer hypocrisy uh, when you have a, a, a prime minister who appears to be a feminist and then is going into a situation uh, where there's segregation. Is this hypocrisy or is this building a future foundation and understanding? Well, I, I think it's something completely different, which is about being very careful how you do your ethnic and religious outreach. I'd use the term pandering. Other people would use outreach. We can quibble over that. And you're right. The story that some people are talking about is the fact that at this mosque that he went to, the Ottawa Muslim Association, women sat at the back and up, so on a balcony, and they couldn't come down. And while he brought a few female MPs who were also cabinet ministers with him, including the local liberal MP for that area, they covered up their hair as if they were, well, I guess as if they were in a mosque. You'd think it was maybe as if they were in a foreign country. So they they covered their hair and they did not speak, which is quite interesting. Uh, My story that I've, I've done is I looked at I, I looked at the website of the mosque. I looked around at the certain, you know, sort of ideas and associations they had. And the lead imam, Sami Metwali, describes himself as a member of the International Union of Muslim Scholars. It's a rather sort of benign and generic-sounding organization, but it's actually designated as a terrorist organization in the United Arab Emirates. And a number of experts criticize it for deep ties to the Muslim Brotherhood, which is a designated terrorist organization in a number of countries. 
So, again, what is this? Is this building a foundation? Is this trying to be inclusive, or is it is it pandering? I, I think it must be pandering, because why would you want to be inclusive of people who are doing... I, I, I don't want to use... I, I, I want to rephrase that. I don't. You, you want to be inclusive of everybody, even people who are doing things, you know, at odds with the values that you believe in, because you, of course, want them to more see things your ways. But why would you do actions and events and say words that seem like they're endorsing the things that those people are doing? The fact that Justin Trudeau didn't comment on the gender-segregated fact, aside from saying, I'd like to acknowledge the sisters upstairs, which a lot of people thought was an odd comment, and the Prime Minister's office, uh, did not particularly respond to any questions I sent to them about this imam's associations. In fact, they were somewhat upset with the story. And the mosque has also responded to my story, sending out a statement to media saying that it's categorically false, but they refuse to say what part of the story is false, because it seems pretty crystal clear uh, that the imam is a member of this group, and this group is considered a terrorist organization by some. Uh, what I find fascinating, too, is just people's different views and angles of this story. Instead of it including all of the, uh, the information that you have just talked about, it's some are taking this angle, some are taking that angle. Is as if we don't even know how to address it when something like this happens? Well, I think there's a major challenge in looking at these stories, because when people, when there are communities that predominantly speak a different language, when... Uh, they are just using reference points that we are not familiar with in sort of the English-speaking mainstream media. We don't know how to respond to them. And also a lot of the leaders in these communities, for instance, I, I was speaking to one uh, one Sunni Muslim gentleman last night on the phone who is sort of a background source for the stories, and he was explaining how in a lot of these major mosques in Canada, a lot of the imams come from countries like Saudi Arabia. They were born there and they were raised there and they went to madrashas or or uh, universities there, because we don't really have this sort of training pool for imams in Canada who might grow up to be more kind of Canadian values imams. So that's a total challenge. I mean, how do, how do we wade into that? Every journalist needs to have a few people who, who speak Arabic to give them different interpretations of the videos and what's going on. I'll have people email me and say, look, he's saying this terrible thing in this sermon that's available on YouTube. And I go, well, I don't know how to authenticate that because I don't speak Arabic. So it's just a tough world to wade through, both for me, for you, for the general public, and for the Prime Minister. So, does this bridge a gap, or did he just pick the wrong mosque, the wrong leader? Well, I, I certainly think he picked the wrong imam to stand immediately adjacent to in mm-hmm. this photo op, who leads this mosque. The problem is it is one of the main mosques in the Ottawa area, and there are a number of prominent mosques out there that do have sort of you know, dodgy associates or things they've said that we would consider quite sketchy. I did a report on the Peterborough Mosque that Justin Trudeau went to visit uh, several months ago, and we found out that the uh, that the imam had lectures on YouTube in which he was making what we would consider extremely misogynistic statements. And, of course, Justin Trudeau considers himself a feminist. I, I, I You know, I don't know what to say. Does that maybe mean we know, we should stop treating people as special interest groups and instead treat people as, as citizens and as regular voters. And the politician says, I'm not going to go into the synagogue and the church and the mosque and the temple. Instead, here I am in the public square and come, let's all speak as you know equals in this civic experience. And that just gets rid of all of this. Hmm. I'm playing devil's advocate here. Um, obviously, he's aware of this. I find it hard to believe that he isn't aware of what you were just speaking of. Um, he, 
if he stays away, does it send the wrong message? What message does it send by him attending? Well, the message that they want it to send, and this is a statement the Prime Minister's office sent to me, is that we, we, uh, we celebrate, I think the term was, the true diversity of Canada by going to places like this, and we want to embrace all, and we have this inclusive vision. The problem is by just not acknowledging these sort of warts and hiccups in how these organizations and some of these preachers clearly are very much odds with Canadian values, and in some cases doing things that kind of flirt with criminality in terms of terrorist uh, associations, being associated with groups designated terrorist groups, uh, you know, it definitely presents a challenge that the Prime Minister just isn't even acknowledging this. Mm. And this is why a lot of Canadian mem- you know, members of the public, people who respond to my story, see this as a bit of doublespeak. Yeah. They don't know what to make of what the Prime Minister's doing. And to be honest, Scott, I don't either. No, I can understand that point. Uh, what should he have done? Can you acknowledge Canadian values in such a setting? Boy, we're using the term Canadian values a lot now, aren't we? <laughs> Holy smokes. And I, I it's heard like, you it's just like in the lead up to me coming on saying, well, what are our Canadian values? What are our list of Exactly. Values? I think we can agree the women sit upstairs and to the back is not one of them. So he, he, <laughs> Good point. Well, here's an example, though. So he went to China the other week, and he did, he did call them out to their face publicly for their human rights violations. He did it in a very cautious and diplomatic way. Of course he should. I think there are some people who would maybe want him to go into the mosque and start yelling at them and so forth, and mm-hmm. I, I just don't think that's necessarily a good idea, but you still have to show that you disapprove of these sort of associations they have, members, uh, memberships they have, uh, and so on, to, to be a leader. And, and Scott, I also want to point out that, because the mosque sent out this media statement sort of against my reporting, saying oh, it's fear-mongering against Canadian Muslims. No, no, no. I think the one million Muslims in Canada are actually some of the people who will benefit and who deserve strong reporting from the media, looking into the leadership and the power brokers in their communities, just like we investigate the power brokers in the academic community and and mainstream politics and the like. What about if he had said? What about if he had said, Anthony, something along the lines of, uh, "We'll acknowledge the ladies that are standing upstairs. I look forward to the day they can come down and join us." What do you think that would have done? That would be considered a watershed moment where the prime minister would have been there recognizing these Canadians, you know, as as who they are and being inclusive, but also, you know, making this sort of optimistic statement towards the fact that they'll come and sort of join us in what's considered mainstream Canadian values, consistent with everything else the prime minister has said on on gender values. I I think, I think, Scott, you should send your resume in because you would make for a great uh, public (laughs) events coordinator for the prime minister. So uh, let, let's sort of switch gears here and talk about Kelly Leach and, of course, the MP that's trying for the federal conservative leadership who has suggested that we, use, or we, we screen for Canadian values during the immigration process. My reaction to that is, as I said before, how do you come up with those values? And, and your point about the, sitting in the, in the balcony, there, there's a start right there. Um, so how do, you, how, how do you come up with them? And then secondly, how do you enforce them? And don't, don't laws do that already? Uh, well, yes and no. Yeah, yeah I, I heard the points you were making earlier. And I think, well, first of all, no polls show that Kelly Leach's idea is immensely popular, not, with a, not just for the majority of conservative voters, but a majority of NDP and liberal voters. That's from a forum research poll in a Toronto Star story uh, a few days ago. And, and that doesn't surprise me too much. How do you do it? 
It's a good question. I mean, you get the Library of Parliament to put forward examples where similar things have maybe been done around the world, and we see, you know, how can we make this happen and so forth. I, I just think that we shouldn't run away from the conversation entirely because there are legitimate questions of sort of how you actually implement this. I think what we see is there's a, a hunger for a conversation about this, and what our political leadership needs to do is show that, as Brian Mulroney said in a speech yesterday, it's already being adequately done. Well, well, is it? Let's look at that. Let's talk about that. And if there are changes we need, well, how can we bring them in? Uh, the head of CSIS was testifying at a Senate committee earlier this year, and he said, oh, the Syrian refugees, whenever there's a red flag we just put their file away. We don't let them in. Now, I pressed CSIS to explain what red flag was, and I couldn't get them to give a good detail. But let's hope that at least means that when they're showing some sort of sympathies for these sort of very young Canadian values, we don't let them in. Why don't you think Leach has got more ahead of this? Uh, she sort of threw it out there and then waited to see how it, how it resonated. Why don't you think she explained herself a little more clearly, or are we just not hearing that? I think she did explain herself more clearly. She sent out some email statements to media, sort of further expanding upon that. I think the biggest challenge to her, Scott, is this was one question of quite a few in a survey sent out sort of internally to Conservative Party members, and now it's become this big national conversation. So it's not like she was even standing up there on national television saying, we must do this. It seems like, you know, she was actually almost on the fence about it anyway. So it's clearly become a winner for her, but I'm not sure if there's really anything for her to get behind so much in that it's not necessarily her idea any more than it is anybody else's. Uh, PCs obviously distancing themselves from this whole notion and, and from her. Are they just playing politically correct? Uh, is, that, is that the way to handle this? You know, it, it makes no sense at all that this is happening. Ronna Ambrose criticizes it. This is the same Ronna Ambrose who went to the press gallery dinner and made fun of Stephen Harper's personality. I feel like she's a Liberal Party spokesperson in all of this. Uh, the Conservatives are just kind of being liberal light in this, and this is very bizarre because Canadians of all stripes, and I hear from Canadians who are not, you know, what do you want to call them, old-stock Canadians, who they support this, new and recent immigrants. They come here and they say, I want this strong, vibrant Canada. That's why I'm here. I don't want values from, you know, the home country or wherever they're, whatever they're referring to. I, I think the Conservatives have a winner on this issue. They just, to your point about making it workable and so forth, they just need to finesse it and not be kind of goofy about it. Is this so hot button a topic that no one's going to go near it? I think they see that there's majority support for it, so people are certainly going to pick up on it. So you think this is something that they're going to have to be faced with in the, next, in the short term and then between now and the next election? I think this is an example of a story where if the sort of political and academic and media elite ignore it after they see a majority of Canadians like it, you got a Brexit on your hands, you got a Trump on your hands. These are all the sorts of things that they create the way for, for a rise like that. Interesting point. Anthony Fury has been with us, Sun Media columnist and national comment editor. And, of course, the uh, article in Monday, September 12th edition, Trudeau Visits Mosques with Terror Connections. Anthony, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
Thanks. Have a great day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's move a little deeper into the actual newspaper business itself. Print media on the decline. Uh, all traditional media is feeling the, the pinch. Some outlets have been turning to alternative sources of revenue. For example, uh, the Star announced the launch of uh, Headline Coffee, which delivers uh, ethnically sourced coffee beans to anyone with a 20-month uh, on a, for $20 a month, anybody on a subscription program. Uh, is this something we're going to see? Is this the answer? Uh, to talk more about all of this, Paul Knox is with us, Professor Emeritus at Ryerson School of Journalism, and is with us now. Hello, Paul. How are you today? Hi, I'm fine. Thanks. Thanks thank, for having me on. Thank you for taking the, ch- the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. Uh, internet, many are blaming the Im- Internet for the decline uh, of newspapers. Uh, but at the end of the day, the Internet is just another method of distribution. It's it's the organizations that provide the quality content. Why can't newspapers seem to make this work or, or find the sweet spot? Well, I mean, one problem is uh, that, you know, your average news, uh, daily newspaper in North America until about uh, 15 years ago got most of its revenue from advertising, roughly 80% and 20% from circulation. In other words, the uh, price the subscribers paid. So. Uh, once uh, it became possible to advertise online, advertisers um, deserted the uh, newspaper uh, newspapers uh, in large numbers, and uh, because they could um, get their message out much more cheaply online, both classified and display advertisers. So uh, uh, there's been a dramatic drop off in uh, the advertising revenue from print. Um, and also a considerable drop-off in uh, revenue from circulation uh, because people can also get their news free off the Internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, they're looking for, uh, they need to somehow make up that revenue. Now, there's advertising on the Internet. sells for a tiny fraction of what similar advertising would sell for uh, in the print product. So um, they're all in the position where they really are looking for um, new revenue streams on one hand, but also ways to bring their readers back into the fold and bring and, and build uh, more of a community of readers uh, who hopefully eventually will be willing to pay um, uh, once again for what the newspaper has to provide. What about the newspaper's online product? Have they done enough? Have they been diligent enough? Uh, did they jump on this game early enough? They didn't jump on it early enough in most cases. Um, uh, a lot of them are playing catch-up. Um, some of them are doing very well. Um, I think our, uh, the Globe and Mail, where I used to work, is probably one of the leaders in, in Canada. But there are others. The Winnipeg Free Press is uh, experimenting with a, a model where you pay uh, a tiny amount for, or for everything you read. The uh, press in, in uh, Montreal has... Uh, gone to an all-tablet um, edition. They only, I think, print their newspaper on Saturday now um, in a printed form. Um, uh, and there are lots of examples uh, in the United States and Europe of you know people who have done it pretty well. But a lot of people are still uh, essentially shoveling the contents of the newspaper onto the internet with very little change and are and are not yet taking advantage of you know, the, uh, the uh, opportunities that the Internet offers. So what is working? Who is doing it right? How are they doing it differently? Well, I go back to the sense of community. I mean, we always knew, mm. you know, I worked in newspapers for uh, more than 30 years, and I think we always knew that uh, there was a, a certain bond or a certain 
um, ethos that we shared with uh, among reader, readers, writers, and editors. Uh, and it gave the newspaper its personality. Um, and a lot of that was um, related to the community where the newspaper was published. You have that in Hamilton with the Hamilton Spectator, which mm-hmm. is very, um, you know, very, very aware of its position as, as uh, a source of news for the local community. Um, and nationally, you, uh, you know, uh, operations like the Globe and Mail, National Post, the British newspapers, all, all of uh, the big ones of which are national. Um, so the best ones are are marrying their, you know, traditional uh, journalism, which you know plays a lot of <clears throat> roles and has a lot of functions, with uh, an attempt to reinforce that sense of community, um, reinforce that the idea that you know people want to. Uh, uh, be addressed in a certain way about the news. They want a certain kind of news. They want uh, a certain kind of perspective on the world or the place where they live. Um, uh, traditionally, as an editor, that was your job, was to know uh, instinctively, more or less, what that was. Um, but when when you have the Internet, uh, um, you have to develop that voice a lot, in a lot, in many different ways. Um, and um, I think you know the successful ones have um, branched out, and they've done these partnerships, like um, with with other uh, organizations. They've um, they, they they do things like whole event series, have bring in speakers on topics that mm-hmm. are linked to things that are in the in the newspaper, or that they know that their audiences are interested in. Uh, they'll do uh, they try to get to know their audiences really specifically by crunching a lot of data that they collect from when people go on the news sites and so on, and then they try to uh, work that back into, uh, into the product they produce. Have we lost or did we lose sight that local sells? Well, I mean, there's a lot of competition for local, um, but down past a certain point, um, uh, it doesn't make sense to uh, put everything on the Internet because... Um, you know, you have, I mean, there's, you know, if there's a really small number of people interested in it, um, it doesn't really matter uh, that much, and it may not be worth the resources. So in a really small community, it it may not be actually all that viable to have a huge, uh, for a media organization to have a a huge Internet presence. But, you know, once you get past five or 10,000 in a community, um, you 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 really do have a critical mass of people and a critical mass of information. I think that ought to make it work. The question is not whether local sells; it's whether local buys. And the problem is that um, there there's so much uh, competition out there for people's eyeballs, even at a local level. I mean, you might have you know a newspaper, a traditional newspaper that spends a lot of money to produce. Journalism, and then you might have a shopper, a free weekly that doesn't spend a whole lot of money um, and undercuts the other uh, in the competition for advertising. And um, you know, so that's where the difficulty is uh, not not um, not the desire to focus on local coverage, but the uh, problem of how to make money on it. Um, Will obviously online advertising hasn't come up to what traditional advertising. uh, has it doesn't look like it will certainly in 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 the short term. 
uh, therefore alternate revenue streams are needed. But will the consumer get to a point where they realize, you know, uh, everybody knows the Internet, it's free, man, everything's free on the Internet. But will the, will the pendulum swing back and they finally realize that, you know what, that's, that, that doesn't have the depth that these other brands do? Well, I, I guess that's what everybody would like, but I think you have to find a sweet spot. I mean, you have to, you have to find, um, I mean, you still, you still have to offer something unique, something different, um, you know, something that nobody else is offering. And that's, that's why I had some questions about this, you know, the STARS initiative uh, uh, where they have this uh, headline coffee uh, business that um, you know you can subscribe for twenty dollars a month. You can get a different kind of coffee every every uh, every month um, delivered to you at home. And they they're trying to tie that into the paper by saying, well, the coffee and a newspaper are uh, a, a ritual for so many people. Sure. The difficulty for me is, I mean, number one, um, you know, a lot of people are doing coffee in the newspaper not at home where they used to, mm. but in somebody else's coffee shop. So, um, you know, I mean, I, yeah. it, it kind of breaks down there. And there are, there are some other problems with it. I mean, I don't, you know, it's not, uh, it's not really linked to anything in the newspaper. Um, it seems to almost be a separate kind of business. And if it makes money and help that they can use to subsidize the, you know, help pay for some of the journalism. Great, I mean, I'm all for that. But um, you know, we'll we'll have to wait and see if that happens. So, when when you combine products or bundle products like yeah. that, does it take away from the the credibility of of what the newspaper well, that's, is? That's that's a potential issue, and you have to be very careful. I think uh, and think about it. For example, if they were going to do a an investigation of uh, fair trade coffee around the world, they'd want to be pretty sure that. Um, the coffee they were distributing wasn't going to turn out to be, you know, not fair trade coffee. Now there's organizations that certify that, and 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 they've 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 done it in that manner. So, but it 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 certainly raises the possibility of um, that you know you would have a credibility problem down the road. By itself, I don't think it necessarily does, uh, but you certainly have to be on the lookout for it. Um, you know, I can envision. You you have to be very careful about your your partnerships, and always keep in mind that you're, what you're trying to do is you're just like when you're writing a news story. You're working for the readers. You're working for the audience. You know, um, uh, readers, listeners, viewers, whoever they are. And if you keep that principle in mind, foremost, um, you know, you'll be less likely to make some of these. Uh, you know ethical or worst practices uh, hmm. mistakes. What does the online alternative that's taking everything away from the newspaper industry look like? What is working online? Can newspaper learn from that? Well, you have some sites that are, you know, purely aggregation sites, so they just grab whatever they can from wherever, yeah. uh, don't pay for it, um, maybe alter it in some slight way. Um, and sell advertising, you know, based on the uh, number of eyeballs that they can draw in, uh, uh, you know, with that that huge mix of of stuff. Um, uh, then you have others that are financed in different ways. Some some of them even personally. Some of them by foundations, uh, particularly in the U.S. Um, uh, that are uh, public interest organizations that, um, you know, fund uh, actual investigative 
uh, journalism. Then you have, in our country, one of the things newspaper publishers have started to complain about is the CBC, um, which uh, has a very um, uh, detailed uh, news website. Um, and, of course, newspapers uh, feel, as broadcasters always have, that it's subsidized competition. Hmm. Um, uh, I don't actually think there's much to that argument because the CBC's mandate is to deliver a public news service to the country, and you can't do that in this day and age without a web operation. But in any case, uh, the CBC is one of the ones that is doing you know, a pretty decent job of offering Canadians uh, news about their own country. Um, so you know, those are some of the models that are out there. Um, and the newspapers, you know, have learned um, that, uh, uh, you know, some things about uh, design, for example, things have to look different on the web than they look, um, than they look like in, the, in, a, in a printed product. Um, people have uh, generally are going to spend less time on each individual item. Um, there are some issues of how you display, uh, how much you display at the top of the site, how much of indexing you do. Whether, and there's all kinds of technical things that have to work for a web experience to be really good. You 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 have to watch broken links. You have to um, you have to uh, make it really easy for the reader to navigate around mm-hmm. the site and not get lost on going down rabbit holes uh, via via links that either don't work or are irrelevant to what they're interested in. So it it has to be fairly carefully organized, and then. You have to measure what you're getting in terms of traffic and try to decide, you know, well, what are people really interested in? What are they clicking on? And how long are they staying? Very important. How long are they staying? You know, or are they just, and how did they get here? Did they get here uh, via Facebook, via some other social media um, um, platform, or did they get here uh, because they come here every day? out of habit? Or do you have a newsletter? I mean, personally, I find newsletters from news organizations very useful. You, you get them in the morning, they give you your, your top right. stuff, it's in your email. Mm-hmm. You don't have to open up something else. And, and you know, so, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that they, they have to learn, and the best of them are learning. Um, you know, uh, production techniques, another thing. I mean, Newspapers traditionally don't do video. Well, everybody does video now, and there's good ways and bad ways to do that. What do you tell journalism students who uh, will be looking for a job in this industry? How do you teach media differently now? Well, I mean, I'm, you know, I retired at the end of last year, so I'm, I'm, you know, not not actually doing it myself right now, but I would certainly have been involved right right up to the end in the discussions about that and obviously you um you 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 start teaching them different uh, you know to to be multimedia journalists right from the beginning yeah um and you try to tell them you know i i guess something that's always been true but but more important than ever which is two things number one be versatile and number one be portable be willing and number two be portable be willing to go you know, anywhere uh, or, you know, to, to places you wouldn't have thought of going mm-hmm. uh, to get your start. Um, uh, there's a danger, though. I mean, sometimes, you know, we hear from people who say they want our graduates to be platform agnostic in the sense that, you know, they can work in video, they can work in audio or radio, they can work in 
uh, you know, they can shoot still, still mm-hmm. pictures, they can write text, they can pretty much do everything. Um, and while, while it is important to be versatile, it's also important to be rec- recognized that not everybody is going to be equally, equally good at all of those things. Right. And therefore, um, you don't want them to be mediocre on all platforms. Right. So you try to um, identify, you know, and, and, and encourage them to identify where they're most comfortable, where, what, what, you know, what skills they want to develop once they've been given the basics. And then give them opportunities to concentrate on that, both in the uh, in the school and its and its labs and its facilities, and via experiential uh, learning, which is uh, you know going out there and as interns and uh, and working at re- in in real newsrooms in the real world. Uh, do people realize now, or students realize, they are the media rather than the corp that they work for? I mean, I find it odd now when whoever the, or whatever the organization blames the media, because, boy, it's not just traditional media now, it's everyone with a device. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, and and often, I mean, even before the, the advent of the Internet and the web, I mean, I, that used to bug me, the, the sort of I blame the media, because... Sometimes you would drill down on a conversation and be turned turned out it was Hollywood they were angry at and not the newspaper. Mm. But uh, y- y- I mean, yes, they do. And uh, y- you know, one one of the issues we have is actually trying to um, get them off the first person um, uh, kind of hook that they get stuck mm. on and encouraged to, you know, encouraged to. Uh, you know, to write about themselves and and have everything sort of reflected through a first person lens and instead of a third person uh, a third person lens where you know they're, they're not part of the story or they're not they're not their experience is not central to the story. Um, it gets harder and harder to do that because um, you know people seem to want to read about individuals and their own stories. I mean, they're very popular and. In uh, you know blogs are very right. popular, and by definition, they're almost always uh, first person and, so, and that kind of thing. So, so um, yeah, it's it's. I mean, uh, you know, we we try to we think we still think, or I still think, there's value in what traditional journalism did, which was you know to tell people what was going on in their world, to hold public officials accountable, to tell the re- your audience about new ideas, give them information they had to know so that they could make proper decisions um, and understand what was going on around them. Um, uh, and we certainly try to try to do that and try to get them to be as, um, you know, as uh, start with their own awareness and then, um, you know, get to understand the techniques that work, work best in conveying that to a large non-specialist audience. Paul Knox has been with us, Professor Emeritus at the Ryerson School of Journalism. Paul, thanks for the insight. Much appreciated. Okay, it was a pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.